Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 29 Bristles Mr. Joss had hired a pair of horses for his open carriage, which he drove around Brussels. George and Captain Dobbin would often accompany the carriage on horseback. When they went to the park, George's remark proved to be correct. In the midst of a troop of horsemen, Rebecca, in the prettiest and tightest of riding habits, was mounted on a beautiful little Arab which she rode perfectly, having acquired the art at Queen's Crawley, by the side of the gallant General Tufto. "'Sure, it's the Duke himself!' cried Mrs. Major O'Dowd. "'And that's Lord Uxbridge on the bay! Oh, how elegant he looks! Oh, me brother, Malloy Maloney is as like him as two peas!' When Rebecca saw them, she gave Amelia a gracious nod and smile, kissing and shaking her fingers playfully towards the vehicle. Then she resumed her conversation with General Tufto. But Rawdon Crawley came up and shook hands heartily with Amelia and said to Joss, "'Well, old boy, how are you?' and stared at Mrs. O'Dowd until she began to think she had made a conquest of him. George rode up almost immediately with Dobbin and met Rawdon's greeting with warmth. The nods between Rawdon and Dobbin were the very faintest specimens of politeness. Crowley told George they were staying with General Tufto at the Hotel du Parc. "'Sorry I hadn't seen you three days ago,' George said. "'Had a dinner at the restaurateurs. Lord Bearacres and the Countess and Lady Blanche were good enough to dine with us. Ah, wish we'd had you.' They then parted, as Rawdon followed the August squadron away, while George and Dobbin resumed their places besides Amelia's carriage. "'How well the Duke looked,' Mrs. O'Dell remarked. "'The Wellesleys and Maloneys are related. "'But, of course, I would never dream of introducing myself "'unless His Grace thought proper to remember our family tie.' "'He's a great soldier,' Joss said. "'Was there ever a battle like Salamanca, eh, Dobbin? "'But he learned his art in India, my boy. "'The jungle's the school for a general.' They talked about these great people during the drive and at dinner until it was time to go to the opera. The opera house was filled with familiar British faces. Mrs. O'Dowd's was not the least splendid outfit, and she had a set of Irish diamonds and cairngorms which outshone all the decorations in the house, to her thinking. Her presence excruciated Osborne, but she assumed that her young friends were charmed with her company. "'What a comfort it is that Rebecca's come,' George said to his wife. "'You will have her now for a friend, and we may get rid of this damned Irishwoman.' Amelia did not answer. 
Mrs. O'Dowd did not consider the opera house to be so fine as the theatre in Fishamble Street, Dublin, nor was French music at all equal, in her opinion, to the Irish melodies. She gave these opinions in a very loud voice, and tossed about a great clattering fan with the most splendid complacency. "'Who is that wonderful woman with Amelia Rawdon, love?' said a lady in a box opposite. "'Near the pretty little woman in white?' asked a middle-aged gentleman seated by her side. "'That pretty woman in white is Amelia, General. You are noticing all the pretty women, you naughty man.' "'Only one bagad in the world,' said the general, delighted, and the lady gave him a tap with her large bouquet. "'Bajad, it's him,' said Mrs. O'Dowd, "'and that's the very bouquet he bought.' When Rebecca kissed her hand to Amelia, Mrs. Major O'D, taking the compliment to herself, returned the salute with a gracious smile, which sent Dobbin shrieking out of the box again.' At the end of the act, George went to pay his respects to Rebecca. He met Crawley in the lobby with two brilliant young gentlemen of fashion, like himself on the staff of a general officer. "'You found my checks all right at the agents?' George said. "'All right, my boy,' Rodden answered. "'Happy to give you your revenge. (laughs) Governor, come round?' "'Not yet,' said George. "'But he will.' "'And you know I've some private fortune through my mother. "'Has Auntie relented? "'Sent me twenty pound. <laughs> "'Damned old screw. "'When shall we have a meet? "'Can you come Tuesday?' "'I will go and pay my respects to your wife,' said George, "'at which Rawdon said, mm, "'As you please,' looking very glum, "'and the two young officers exchanged knowing glances.' George strutted down to the general's box. "'Entrez!' said a clear little voice. As he entered, Rebecca jumped up, clapped her hands, and held them out to him. The general stared at the newcomer with a sulky, inquiring scowl. "'My dear Captain George!' cried little Rebecca in an ecstasy. "'General, this is my Captain George, of whom you've heard me talk.' "'Indeed!' said the general, with a very small bow. Of which regiment? George told him. He wished he could have said a crack cavalry corps. Come home from the West Indies, I believe. Not seen much service lately. Quartered here, Captain George? The general went on haughtily. Not Captain George, you stupid man. Captain Osborne, Rebecca said. The general looked savage. Captain Osborne, indeed. (laughs) Any relation to the Lincolnshire Osborne? We bear the same coat of arms, George said, as indeed they did. Mr. Osborne, having picked the Lincolnshire arms out of the peerage when he set up his carriage fifteen years before. The general made no reply. He took up his opera glass and pretended to look round, but Rebecca saw him shooting bloodshot glances at her and George. She redoubled in cordiality. "'How is dearest Amelia? But I needn't ask. How pretty she looks! And who is that good-natured-looking creature with her? A flame of yours?' 
<laughs> oh, you wicked man. And there is Mr. Sedley eating ice. General, why have we not had any ices? Shall I go and fetch you some? said the general, bursting with wrath. Let me go, I entreat you, George said. No, I will go to Amelia's box. Give me your arm, Captain George. And with a nod to the general, she tripped into the lobby. She gave George the queerest, knowingest look, which might have been interpreted as, Don't you see what a fool I'm making of him? But George did not perceive it. He was thinking of his own plans, and lost in pompous admiration of his own irresistible powers of pleasing. As soon as they left him, the general uttered curses that I am sure no compositor would venture to print. Amelia's eyes, too, had been fixed anxiously on the pair, who had so enraged the jealous general. But when Rebecca entered her box, she flew to her friend with affectionate rapture and embraced her in full view of the house. Then Mrs. Rawdon saluted Joss kindly. She admired Mrs. O'Dowd's diamonds. She bustled, she chattered, she smiled and smirked, all in full view of the general's jealous opera glass. And when the time came for the ballet... She skipped back to her own box, leaning on Captain Dobbin's arm this time. "'What a humbug that woman is,' Dobbin muttered to George on his return. "'She writhes and twists about like a snake. All the time she was here, didn't you see, George, how she was acting at the general over the way?' "'Oh, humbug! Acting! Oh, hang it! She's the nicest little woman in England,' George replied giving his whiskers a twirl. You ain't a man of the world, Dobbin. Damn, she's talked over Tufto already. Look how he's laughing now. Oh, God, what a shoulder she has. Emmy, why didn't you have a bouquet? Everybody has a bouquet. Faith, then, why didn't you buy one? Mrs. O'Dowd said, and both Amelia and William Dobbin thanked her for this observation. But beyond this, Neither of the ladies rallied. Amelia was overpowered by the dazzle of her worldly rival. Even the O'Dowd was subdued after Becky's brilliant apparition. "'When do you intend to give up gambling, George, as you have promised many times?' Dobbin said to his friend a few days after this. Well, "'When do you intend to give up sermonizing?' was George's reply. "'What the deuce are you alarmed about? We play low!' I won last night. You don't suppose Crawley cheats? I don't think he could pay if he lost, Dobbin said. But his advice was ignored. Osborne and Crawley were repeatedly together now. When Amelia and George visited Crawley and his wife at their quarters, which were shared with General Tufto, they nearly had their first quarrel. That is, George scolded his wife violently for her unwillingness to go, and for the high and mighty manner in which he behaved toward Mrs. Crawley, and Amelia did not say one word in reply. With her husband's eye upon her, and Rebecca scanning her, she was, if possible, more awkward on the second visit than the first. Rebecca was a doubly affectionate, of course, and would not take notice of her friend's coolness. 
I think Emmy has become prouder, she said to George. Upon my word, I thought when we were at Brighton she was jealous of me, and now I suppose she is scandalized because Rawdon and I and the General live together. Why, how could we, with our means, live at all but for a friend to share expenses? And do you suppose that Rawdon is not big enough to take care of my honor? But I'm very much obliged to Emmy, very, Mrs. Rawdon said. Ah, oh, pooh, pooh, answered George. All women are jealous. And all men, too. Weren't you jealous of General Tufto and the General of you at the opera? Why, he was ready to eat me for going with you to visit that foolish little wife of yours, as if I care a pin for either of you, Crawley's wife said, with a pert toss of her head. Will you dine here? The dragon dines with the commander-in-chief. Great news is stirring. They say the French have crossed the frontier. We shall have a quiet dinner. George accepted the invitation, although his wife was a little ailing. They were now not quite six weeks married. Another woman was laughing or sneering at her expense, and he was not angry. He was not even angry with himself. Hang it! If a pretty woman will throw herself in your way, what can a fellow do? I am rather free about women, he had often said, smiling to stubble and spoony at the mess table. So Mr. Osborne, convinced that he was a lady killer, yielded himself up to it complacently. And as Emmy did not plague him with her jealousy, but merely pined over it miserably in secret, he chose to imagine that she did not suspect what all his acquaintance knew, namely, that he was carrying on a desperate flirtation with Mrs. Crawley. He rode with her whenever she was free. He pretended regimental business to Amelia, was not in the least deceived, and, leaving her to solitude or her brother's society, passed his evenings in the Crawley's company, losing money to the husband and flattering himself that the wife was dying of love for him. This worthy couple never actually conspired. The one to cajole the young gentleman, whilst the other won his money at cards, but they understood each other perfectly and Rawdon let Osborne come and go with entire good humor. George and William Dobbin were not so much together as formerly. George avoided him. He did not like those sermons which William inflicted upon him. If his conduct made Captain Dobbin exceedingly grave, of what use was it to tell George that he was as green as a schoolboy? that Rawdon was making a victim of him, as he had done of many before. He would not listen. In any case, Dobbin seldom met his old friend. George was in the full career of the pleasures of Vanity Fair. There never was such a brilliant train of camp followers as hung round the Duke of Wellington's army in 1815, and let it dancing and feasting up to the very brink of battle. A certain ball which a noble duchess gave at Brussels on the 15th of June is historical. All Brussels was excited about it, talking more about the ball than about the nearness of the enemy, and desperate to gain admission. 
Joss and Mrs. O'Dowd tried in vain to get tickets, but others were more lucky. Lord Bearacres, in return for the dinner, arranged an invitation card for Captain and Mrs. Osborne, which greatly elated George. Dobbin, who was a friend of the general, commanding their division, came laughing to Mrs. Osborne and displayed a similar invitation, which made Joss envious, and made George wonder how the deuce he was getting into society. Mr. and Mrs. Rawdon were invited as friends of General Tufto. On the night, George, having commanded new ornaments for Amelia, drove to the famous ball where his wife did not know a soul. After looking about for Lady Bearacres, who cut him, thinking the card was quite enough, and after placing Amelia on a bench, he left her there, thinking he had behaved very handsomely in getting her new clothes and bringing her to the ball, where she was free to amuse herself as she liked. Her thoughts were not pleasant, and nobody except honest Dobbin came to disturb them. Whilst her appearance was a failure, as her husband felt with a sort of rage, Mrs. Rawdon Crawley's was very brilliant. She arrived late. Her face was radiant, her dress perfection. In the midst of the great persons and eyeglasses directed to her, Rebecca was cool and collected. Many of the men she knew already, and the dandies thronged around her. The ladies whispered that Rawdon had run away with her from a convent, and that she was a relation of the Montmorency family. She spoke French so perfectly that there might be some truth in this report, and it was agreed that her manners were fine. Fifty would-be partners pressed to have the honour to dance with her. But she said she was engaged, and was going to dance very little, and went at once to the place where Emmy sat quite unnoticed and unhappy. And so, to finish the poor child, Mrs. Rawdon affectionately greeted her dearest Amelia and began to patronize her. She found fault with her friend's dress, and her hairdresser, and her shoes. She vowed that it was a delightful ball, with only a very few nobodies in the room, and generally acted like a woman of fashion. George soon found his way back to Emmy when Rebecca was by her dear friend's side. Becky was just lecturing Mrs. Osborne upon her husband's follies. For God's sake, stop him from gambling, my dear, she said, or he will ruin himself. He and Rawdon are playing at cards every night, and you know he is very poor, and Rawdon will win every shilling from him if he does not take care. Why don't you prevent him, you little careless creature? Why don't you come to us of an evening, instead of moping at home with that Captain Dobbin? Oh, I dare say he is très aimable, but how, how could one love a man with such big feet? Your husband's feet are darlings. <clears throat> Here he comes. And where have you been, wretch? Here is Emmy crying her eyes out for you. Oh, are you coming to fetch me for the quadrille? and she left her bouquet and shawl by Amelia's side and tripped off with George to dance. Only women know how to wound so.
Our poor Emmy, who had never sneered in her life, was powerless in the hands of her remorseless little enemy. George danced with Rebecca, while Amelia sat quite unnoticed in her corner, except when Rawdon came up with some words of clumsy conversation, and later when Captain Dobbin brought her refreshments and sat beside her. He did not like to ask her why she was so sad, but to account for her tears, she told him that Mrs. Crawley had alarmed her by telling her that George was still playing cards. At last, George came back for Rebecca's shawl and flowers. Amelia let her husband come and go without a word, and her head drooped. George went off with the bouquet, but when he gave it to Rebecca, there lay a note coiled like a snake among the flowers. Rebecca's eye caught it at once. She put out her hand and took the nosegay, and he saw that she was aware of his note. With one of her quick, knowing glances, she curtsied and walked away with her husband. George said nothing in reply to a remark of Crawley's, did not hear it even. His brain was so throbbing with triumph and excitement. His wife saw only part of the bouquet scene. It was quite natural that George should come to get Rebecca's scarf and flowers. It was no more than he had done twenty times before. But now it was too much for her. William, she said, suddenly clinging to Dobbin, who was near her, you've always been very kind to me. I'm, I, I'm not, not well. Take me home, please. She did not know she called him by his Christian name. He went away with her quickly, threading through the restless crowd outside and took her to her lodgings nearby. George had been angry previously at finding his wife up when he returned from his parties, so she went straight to bed now. She did not sleep, although the din and clatter and galloping of horsemen were incessant. She never heard these noises, having other disturbances to keep her awake. Meanwhile, Osborne, wild with elation, went off to a card table and began to bet frenetically. He won. Everything succeeds with me tonight, he said. But he got up after a while, pocketed his winnings, and went to a buffet where he drank a good deal of wine. Here, as he was chatting and laughing loudly with high spirits, Dobbin found him. Dobbin looked as pale and grave as his comrade was flushed and jovial. Hello, Dob. Come and drink, old Dob. The Duke's wine is famous. I give me some more, sir. And he held out a trembling glass. Come out, George, said Dobbin gravely. Don't drink. Drink yourself and light up your lantern jaws, old boy. Here's to you. Dobbin whispered something, in which George, giving a start and a wild hooray, drained his glass and walked away speedily on his friend's arm. The enemy has passed the sombre, William said and our left is already engaged. We are to march in three hours. Away went George, his nerves quivering with excitement. What were love and intrigue now? He thought about a thousand things in his rapid walk to his quarters, his past life and future chances, the fate which might be before him.
the wife, the child, perhaps, from whom he might be about to part. Oh, how he wished that night's work undone, so that with a clear conscience he might say farewell to the tender being by whose love he had set such little store. He thought over his brief married life. In those few weeks he had frightfully dissipated his little money. How reckless he had been! If anything should happen to him, what was left for her? How unworthy he was of her! Why had he married her? He was not fit for marriage. Why had he disobeyed his father? Hope, remorse, ambition, tenderness, and selfish regret filled his heart. He sat down and wrote to his father. Dawn faintly streaked the sky as he closed this farewell letter. He sealed it and kissed it, thinking how he had deserted that generous father and of the thousand kindnesses of the stern old man. He had looked into Amelia's bedroom when he entered. She lay quiet and seemed asleep. His regimental servant was already making silent preparations for his departure. Should he wake Amelia, he thought, or leave a note for her brother to break the news to her? He went in to look at her once again. She had been awake when he first entered her room, but had kept her eyes closed. But then this timid little heart had felt more at ease, and she had fallen into a light sleep. George came in again, entering softly. By the night lamp he could see her sweet, pale face. The purple eyelids closed, one round arm, smooth and white, lay outside the coverlet. Good God, how pure she was, how gentle, and how friendless, and he, how selfish, brutal, and black with crime. Shame-stricken, he stood at the bed's foot and looked at the sleeping girl. God bless her. He came to the bedside and looked at the little soft hand, and he bent over the pillow noiselessly towards the gentle, pale face. Two fair arms closed tenderly round his neck as he stooped down. I am awake, George, the poor child said, with a sob fit to break her little heart. At that moment a bugle began sounding clearly and was taken up through the town, and amidst the drums of the infantry and the shrill pipes of the Scots, the whole city awoke. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. 
and The Garden Show.